Welcome to Theologically Speaking, a podcast of BJU Seminary. I'm your host, Eric Newton, and I'm joined again this week in the studio by colleagues Dr. Ken Casillas and Dr. Leighton Talbert. They teach Old Testament theology and New Testament theology, respectively, here at BJU Seminary. Uh, Thanks for joining me again today. Um, We talked last time about biblical theology, um, what it means to be biblical, how that feeds into certain theological disciplines, and uh, maybe some helpful resources if uh, people are looking for direction in this way. Uh, We said we'd come back to this and talk a little bit more about why this has been significant for our own context here, and then how it relates to other disciplines like systematic theology. So, We'll start with that first question, and that's uh, why has biblical theology historically been emphasized at BJU Seminary? Um, I've been doing some research on this, and it's interesting. I I think that there are many reasons, uh, but three that have actually kind of risen to the surface. Uh, One is is really just the theological premise uh, of the authority of Scripture. And obviously, we're not the only ones who believe that. And a very confessedly denominational seminary uh, can have a full adherence to the authority of Scripture. Uh, But when you are uh, starting out, as BJU did in the 1920s, and the context is one which liberalism is encroaching and taking over denominations, and there are uh, a group of people that are coming out, they're withstanding, they're banding together, um, and saying, you know, we may not all agree in our confessional statements, but what we do agree about is that the Bible is our authority, that God has Uh, breathed out these words that they are inerrant and they're sufficient and therefore whatever the Bible says that's what we're going to believe and we think that we can do that together across denominational lines. So I think that that theological premise actually has perpetuated itself in in our teaching. Uh, Not that we get it right all the time. Well maybe you guys do. I, I don't think I get it right all the time but there there is this this ultimate authority that, that transcends, you know, important confessional statements and that sort of a thing. And, and secondly, also that idea of non-denominationalism. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes with uh, fundamentalism, we have notoriety for what we're against. Uh, but actually, uh, fundamentalism is based on a, uh, on a positive premise that... Uh, you know, we believe God has revealed himself, and we want to bow to the authority of that, and we're for whatever is God, God is for, as much as he's revealed it. Uh, and there's a necessary negative corollary that, therefore, we're against uh, whatever is, is against God's word, and that necessitates um, taking stands on, on biblical principles and that sort of a thing. But um, non-denominationalism actually uh, brings people together, and uh, again, it, it gives us this sense that um, we're going to major on the majors. We're, go- we're going to make a big deal about what's clear in Scripture. Uh, we're going to try to be as scriptural as possible in, in our thinking, in, in our presentation, because God revealed, as we talked about last time, himself in certain ways. Um, and so we're going to stick as closely to that as possible and draw inferences 
uh, f- from that as necessary. So I, I think the, the fundamentals, fundamentalist premise, the non-denominationalism, and then just like in, in any institution that lasts for a long time, the people. I, I mean, I think you just look at the people that have been here, and um, they have uh, been drawn to this kind of conviction about the nature of theology and, and even certain methodology that we would call biblical theology. So uh, people like, going way back, Marshall Neal, um, Robert Raymond, who became known for his systematic theology, but actually his dissertation that he wrote here at BJU was a biblical theological uh, dissertation. Hmm. Uh, Eugene Merrill, who went on and taught at Dallas, uh, same thing, dissertation here in the 1960s. And then and then Stuart Custer and Dr. Bell, we, Bob Bell, we mentioned him last time. Um, and even people like uh, Mark Minnick and more present-day folks that have influenced all of us um, uh, the most directly, probably. All of them have been drawn to this kind of methodology and taught it. And, and I think that that is just, it, it may seem simple, but that's a, a simple explanation for why it's perpetuated itself here. Um, Ken, I, I know you've we, we've had good conversations about this. You've helped me think through it. Anything that you'd you'd add to to that? Well, I don't think I'd add anything. That was an excellent summary, but I would certainly echo the spirit of what you said, and particularly on the point about fundamentalism. Uh, we we have become known largely for negative things, at least uh, by outsiders who maybe don't keep up too well with what actually goes on in our classrooms. And what people tend to think of is the separatist part, and that we're, uh, in certain you know, very famous or prominent cases, taking positions where we're, we're pulling away from certain people or movements and so forth. And that is, that is uh, an important part of our heritage. That is something we strive to uphold if necessary. Uh, but it really can overshadow the positive part, that basically this is about we believe the Bible, we love the Bible, we're committed to the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to teach and emphasize whatever the Bible says. And when that is at the core of everything, it really, it really should have a unifying kind of an influence, which was part of the genius of this institution from the outset, that even though there were certain denominational commitments and everybody you know, should, should think through questions and have, have the freedom to join churches that are consistent with all that, there still is a place for pulling together and having a some kind of a corporate unity and fellowship and also testimony before the world that this is fundamentally what binds us together. And that's what we want to bring out primarily as an institution. And through the years, it really has, uh, in the province of God, I think, been used for that. And we, it's something we don't, we don't want to lose. I think there's a, a, another point from what you were talking about, Eric, that's worth underscoring, and that's that the, the faculty lineage, the longevity of some of these men. Some people look at that as a, uh, a negative for the university, like we're, you know, we're stuck on the same people and we're stuck in the same old ideas. Um, but longevity, I would argue, gives, has given the university a sense of theological stability Amen. and reliability. Um, Stuart Custer taught here for, what, 50 years, um, and, you know, there was, there was always a rumor going around that he read a book a day, and I remember him correcting that in class was when, one day. He said, actually, that's not correct. I don't read a book a day. I read a book a night, 
<laughs> but this is not a man who's you know confined to his own little world and not reading extremely widely and is very well informed. Uh, Dr. Bell here again for what was it forty years um, teaching here, and he did you know he's done s- studies in other institutions. He's gone taken classes in other institutions. So this there's there's you know there's not a we're not in a little bubble. Our students read extremely widely. Um, and the longevity of those of men like that who've been committed to a, a very biblical theological approach to Scripture has, I think, uh, contributed significantly to why the seminary is what it is today with the, with the theological stability and and reliability. Yeah, that's helpful. And as you were talking about Dr. Custer, I was thinking about Dr. Bell and his being widely read as well. You sit in his classes, and he's got things coming from every which way. You know, he's got a baseball analogy, and then he's <laughs> off in Aramaic somewhere, and and then it's something, uh, you know, a current news story. And, uh, you know, you just appreciate that he really is connecting dots um, all over the place, inside and outside Scripture. Uh, so I, I, I agree. I, I think that that uh, is a strength of, of these men uh, whose shoulders we stand on. I, I often think of that old adage, it's centuries old, that, that, that I'm a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe the giants didn't, didn't see some things that God in his grace has, uh, you know, through progressive illumination and, and, and through, you know, developed understanding that we've had the advantage to, to study even further, but we're standing on their shoulders. I mean, we, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, right. If it weren't for them and God's providence, so uh, very, very grateful uh, in that respect. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. So we we've got listeners and uh, they're in ministry. They're they're pastors. Uh, they're studying for ministry, and we hope that they will be lifelong learners. Uh, but we don't want them to be uh, lifelong students in the classroom necessarily. We we don't have that many degrees to to hand out. So. Um, can we talk a little bit about biblical theology and ministry? How does this how does this emphasis shape an outlook on ministry? Where do you apply it in ministry? Uh, Ken, you've mentioned a little bit how it feeds into preaching, but maybe we could talk about that some more. Biblical theology in everyday church ministry. Well, I think we're going to come back later to the role of systematic theology, which we all believe, and we want to deal with that. But at the same time, when it comes to local church ministry, I think biblical theology gives you a way to keep the emphasis where it ought to be. And I think largely we are talking about emphasis here. And not that we don't have our conclusions and our our positions worked out. There is a place for bringing those up. There's a place for those in church confessional statements. There's a place for those even in preaching as we think about catechisms and, and all this kind of thing. But the way, the way I try to encourage my students uh, when I'm talking about this, I, I just bring up the question, you know, if somebody's uh, sitting under your ministry for any length of time, uh, or somebody's listening and trying to figure you out and make see what it is that makes you tick, what, what ultimately do you want them to walk away with? Do you want them to walk away thinking, this person is a blankist? you know, fill in the blank, whatever systematic theological position, and that's kind of their thing, and that's what they're known for. Or do you want them to basically say, this is a Bible man. This is a man who devotes his life and ministry to unfolding the scripture in expository preaching, 
and then tying that to the bigger story of Scripture and just keeps coming back to thus saith the Lord, and the core and emphasis of his ministry is on what the Bible actually says because that's the authority. And so I think people can tell that over time and kind of what it is that really drives you. And at a, at a foundational level, I think that's the value of it for ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think biblical theology, I think it's important for ministry from the very basic standpoint that the Bible is, in essence, a biblical theological book, not a systematic theological book. Um, and God is the one who chose to give his self-revelation, not in the form of a, you know, a topicalized textbook or an outline of doctrines to be believed or a collection of um, you know, propositional statements with proof text. He chose to reveal himself through a book that is essentially a book of literature. Um, and you've got dozens of literary genres that make up the content of the scripture. And those genres and understanding those genres and working through those genres and, and, and how they are designed to function naturally lends itself to a biblical theological method of reading and of study. And I think God's people, again, in a ministry context, God's people at large in the pew need to see the Bible not just as a repository of what I'm supposed to believe and what I'm supposed to do. It gives that, but not in the form of lists and outlines and technical treatises, but through stories and poems and parables and letters. It's, it's basically God's narrative of reality through human literary forms. And again, it's, it's the biblical theological approach that, that lends itself most readily to that form in which, this, uh, in which God has given the Scripture to us. Um, there's a, <clears throat> if I can read a quote from, actually this goes back to the last broadcast and maybe one other book that might connect the significance of biblical theology to, to ministry. Um, Edmund Clowney wrote a book called Preaching and Biblical Theology. And he makes the comment, there is no opposition between biblical theology and systematic theology, though the two are distinct. Systematic theology must draw from the results of biblical theology, and biblical theology must be aware of the broad perspectives of systematics. Biblical theology, as a distinct and fruitful study, must take seriously both historical progression and theological unity in the Bible. And as a discipline... Biblical theology has been cultivated by liberals. We talked about that last time, too. But the field of Bible study to which it has led the way requires the orthodox conviction that the Bible is God's supernatural revelation and has the unity of his word. And biblical theology, he concludes, truly conceived, and I would add truly practiced, is a labor of worship. Um, It is understanding God's mind's in the way that God has himself unfolded that mind to us, not only what the Bible teaches, but how God has chosen to to say it. Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> of passages like Proverbs 1, 7, you know, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, to fear the Lord certainly does mean to believe certain propositional statements about him as revealed in Scripture, um, but it is to be conditioned by his revelation um, not only in my beliefs, but in um, and how I think and what I love and how that shapes my practice. You know, so when Paul says uh, 
to the Ephesian elders on the island of Miletus, you know, you, you know I preach the whole counsel of God. And obviously the implication being that they need to do that too now in his absence. And we try to do that today. That, that whole counsel isn't just, you know, make sure that you've got uh, your doctrinal statements aligned. Um, it, it is that, but so much more um, so that we can love God wholeheartedly um, there's a fullness to that. We can we can live in the fear of the Lord. There's a whole lifeness, a worship, like you said, to that. And I, I think that this uh, approach uh, to theology really helps kind of calibrate that. We we just have a few minutes left, um, and you know you could if you uh, stop listening to the podcast, you might walk away saying, okay, well they they think all we should do is biblical theology. They've sort of hinted at systematic. So I think it would be good to finish out with some thoughts about how biblical theology relates to systematic theology. I'll just, I'll just throw the, um, the conclusion on the table. We, we do believe in systematic theology. Uh, we, we teach it here. Uh, we believe it's necessary and important. Um, so how do the disciplines relate and why, what would be a simple maybe example or way of describing why they interrelate and why they're both important? Well, if I could go back to the, the emphasis on our own heritage here, uh, we do teach this math theology. Every student is required to take at least two semesters of it. And I remember going through that, and we had to read thousands of pages from authors that were from all kinds of different theological perspectives. So it was a, a tremendous exposure that gave you a sense of the, of the breadth of the discipline and sort of the main options that are out there in some of the uh, topics. But what we, what we didn't get was a lot of pressure to embrace a particular system, singular, of theology. I think that's a distinction to make between systematic theology as a discipline and then narrowing yourself down to one system of theology that claims to have sort of brought everything together in some kind of a final or authoritative way, and, and that becomes the, the grid or the determiner of your, your way of thinking. And so that, that, I think that's an important distinction. Um, you know, going back to the general question about systematic theology, uh, to me, as you read the Bible, you can't get away from this idea that the more revelation there is, people are interacting with past revelation and bringing it to bear on questions that the original text did not address. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually, we, we use logic for any of these disciplines, right? We're using logic to even read a passage of scripture or to analyze these biblical theological themes. But, but there's a certain uh, approach in systematic theology that, that lends itself more to that, that there's a greater degree of inference, and the inferences that you're making are going pretty, can, can go pretty significantly beyond the scope of the passages that you're wrestling with. That's not, that's not bad. I mean, it actually, I, I tell my students, it actually shows you really care about the Lord and his authority in your life, that you're not content with sort of the bare black and white chapter and verse, Though that is the, the benchmark for everything. But you want to think his thoughts after him. And you're, you're saying to yourself, if the Lord said this, you know, probably as I, as I trace it out deductively, this is what he would say about this other topic that maybe he didn't get into. 
And you see a lot of examples of, of Jesus and Paul doing this kind of thing with past revelation, and I would take those as a model for us. Uh, I think one of the big ones Leighton has done a lot of thought on uh, from the interactions of Christ with the Sadducees is a fascinating example, so I'll let him talk about that one. Well, um, if I can backtrack to your original question, Eric, for just a minute, a couple of illustrations that I use to try to illustrate the um, relationship between systematic and biblical theology. Um, I talk about a three-way mirror, like you're being fitted for a suit, and there's, there's a, there's a um, self-corrective, mutually corrective dimension between biblical theology, systematic theology, uh, what I differentiate is exegetical theology, historical theology. Those are all different angles that kind of are, are mutually corrective and give us a perspective like that three-way mirror of things that we might not see otherwise. Um, I also use the illustration of, of different kinds of land. Uh, you know, a farmer takes a piece of wilderness and, and cuts down the trees and puts in fields and fences and, um, you know, segregated livestock and the barn and everything is very neat and, and segregated and, and, and marked off. And that's a beautiful, helpful, very productive thing. Um, and that's, that's kind of an illustration of what systematic theology does. But there are, frankly, things that you just won't see on a farm. You know, if you want to see bears or if you want to see other wild animals, you're not going to see that on a systematic theology farm, so to speak. Um, biblical theology is a little bit more like a wilderness where you are, you know, you can manage a wilderness, you can make paths through it so that people can see the things that are there that they would not see otherwise. Same thing. You know, there are some things you're not going to see out in the wilderness that you would only see on a farm. Um, there's, a, there's a mutual correctiveness and a mutual value um, you know, I, I raise the question with my students, so which is superior, systematic or, or uh, biblical theology? And the answer is either neither is superior or the answer could be yes. They're both superior in doing what they are designed to do and helping you see things that the other isn't as equipped to help you, uh, to help you see. Yeah, um, we came across somebody alluding recently to uh, J. Gresson Machen saying that the most important position in a seminary was the chair of, of systematic theology. <coughs> Machen, whom we all respect and are thankful for, read, uh, wrote books like Christianity and Liberalism. Um, uh, but, you know, he's coming from a certain perspective. Uh, Princeton Seminary at that time, of course, he left and started Westminster Seminary. Uh, was a confessional Presbyterian seminary, and uh, his, you know, he he's saying this is the most important chair. I would assume because um, it's bounding out unorthodoxy right. and the encroachment of liberalism. Uh, we don't have well, the three of us are sitting in chairs uh, as we speak, but we don't have <laughs> so-called chairs um, in our seminary. Um, but I don't know that we would um, we would say it quite like that. I don't know, Ken. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, it's a tricky question. I mean, anytime you start to pit one discipline against the other or say one is more important, um, I think that we, we could agree that biblical theology is more foundational in the sense that you're actually working closely with, with the text and its historical background. Uh, not that that doesn't go on in systematic, but again, it's a matter of emphasis. Uh, it kind of depends on what, what questions you're asking or what topics you're dealing with as to which of these disciplines is going to, you know, take a bit of priority in any 
discussion. Uh, but I, I, you know, in terms of even d- dealing with the with the uh, issue of uh, false teaching liberalism, I think there's plenty that goes on in biblical theology that also would put up some guardrails and that would keep you from going into heresy. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not totally sure about that statement. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, again, we're going back almost a hundred years there, uh, or just right at a hundred years uh, to what he was saying. So uh, some things have changed. Some things have remained the same. Uh, certainly, we're thankful that he stuck with sure uh, uh, with orthodoxy and wrote about that. Uh, we're about out of time. Um, we do have uh, coming out this month a, a new journal. It's called the Journal of Biblical Theology and Worldview. And uh, in it, you can actually find articles by uh, both of these men. Uh, Ken Casillas has an article about the Old Testament and social justice, and uh, Leighton Talbert has an article actually about systematic theology and how that's done um, in the Bible. This is almost unfair, but you want to take 60 seconds and just give us a (laughs) teaser um, about that? That's real unfair. Um, Well, it basically deals with Jesus' use of systematic theology in his answer to the Sadducees. Um, And there's... There's one explanation of his line of argument that is probably more common than others um, that I am inclined to take issue with. Uh, so basically, I explore the uh, the various lines of argument or, or the various explanations that people have that interpreters have given to what Jesus is really saying and how he's arguing. I think everybody basically agrees it's a systematic theological argument because he's positing a truth from a text that doesn't directly state that truth of the resurrection. Uh, so how is he getting there? There's, there? there's some kind of systematic theological process. The question is, what exactly was his own line of argument? And I think it's really helpful to work through the bad systematic theology of the Sadducees, as well as uh, the good systematic theology that Jesus is doing, and, and how it is, in fact, grounded in biblical and exegetical theology, and that's what makes it really good systematic theology. And it's a really intriguing article. I, I have read every word of it. So uh, I hope that you will uh, look for the release of this first journal issue. It'll be on our seminary website, seminary.bju.edu. Uh, thank you again, uh, friends, for joining me today. Really appreciate it and have uh, enjoyed the conversation myself. Hope you have enjoyed it and benefited from it. Thank you for listening. We hope that you'll join us again next week for another episode of Theologically Speaking as we seek to try to cultivate theological habits of heart and mind and ministry.